Well, we're glad to have you along on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Always a pleasure to expose our listeners to a variety of guests. And today I'm looking forward to taking you around the world, not in 80 days, but about a half hour as we share with Shad Williams. Shad grew up here in Memphis. The story is amazing. He is head of the Shad Williams Evangelistic Association Global Field Evangelism, and they've got one purpose and one goal, to reach the unsaved masses with a message of salvation through none other than Jesus Christ. Chad Williams, thank you for driving from Adamsville, Tennessee, to be here today. Byron, good to be with you, brother. Thank you so much. I know you have met a lot of people. A lot of water has gone under the bridge since the last time we met. I know (laughs) we did a radio show together many years ago, but your hair was red, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it was, and I had a little more of it at the time. Yeah. You made the drive here with your lovely wife, Sheila. You have been married for how long now? 51 years. 51 years. Yeah. We were looking at some of the office hangings in the spot we're recording the show, and behind you is a print, a Memphis artist, numbered signed print that I paid at a yard sale $2 for, but it's a picture of Bill Street, probably back in the early 60s, late 50s, I would think. Mm-hmm. There is a pawn shop. Is it Norman's? Nathan Novick. Oh, Nathan Novick mm-hmm. shop there. Is that a pawn shop? It was, yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's still there or not. I, I don't believe but, so. I don't think I've seen that one there. Of course, Bill Street's been renovated, yeah, and it's changed yeah. quite a bit. But your dad bought your first guitar there. Bought my first guitar there when I was about six or seven years old. My goodness. Yeah. Did you have a desire to play the guitar when you were six? As far back as I can remember. Yeah, when I was five six seven years old that was back in the beginning of the days with elvis and jerry lee and buddy holly all those guys you know they are starting out back then and uh, of course i listened to those guys when i was that age and just aspired to be one of them so i had a desire to play so my dad took me down on uh, down on beale street and actually beale in second and uh, bought that little guitar and i started playing and my hands were too small to uh, reach around the neck so i played it in a different style but anyway yeah i started playing and then my family was from memphis originally but i was actually raised in the delta down in uh, yazoo city mississippi and so when i was about 10 years old my parents wanted me to and i wanted to take guitar lessons but there wasn't anybody there around in that area that could give guitar lessons. Jerry Clower didn't give guitar lessons? No, no, Jerry (laughs) didn't give guitar lessons. So anyway, I wanted to take, couldn't find anybody. Well, my aunt found a guy down on North Watkins Street in Memphis that gave guitar lessons. So when I was 10 years old, my dad, every other week, would put me on a Greyhound bus by myself with my guitar he bought me a, a new electric guitar at that time down at OK Halk Music Company at that time. Anyway, so every two weeks they would send me to Memphis, take my guitar lesson. She would pick me up down at the Greyhound bus station. We'd stop at the old Crystal down there and get hamburgers, and we'd go get my guitar lesson. And then on Sunday morning, I'd be back on my way to the Delta. <laughs> and we did that for a while. So I guess a little bit of the feel of the blues kind of <clears throat> was running through your veins. Yeah, because I was raised around all that, down in the Delta, you know, Muddy Waters, Lightning Slim, Jimmy Reed, all those guys. understand that you actually wrote a song and were being looked at by RCA to actually sign a record deal. 
We had a record deal, yes. After In 1963, my family moved to Memphis. Uh, I got involved in the music business. My very first attempt at the music business was taking a demo to Sun Studio. They had a radio station in Yazoo called WAZF Radio. There was a guy there named uh, Joel. I've forgotten Joel's last name. But anyway, he made a reel-to-reel tape. And then my dad took me and that tape to Sun Studio back in the 50s there sometime. Nothing ever came of that. But after I got out of high school, I got in the music business and started a band here in town called the King Lears. We recorded for American Studios at at one time. But then we did have a, a record called Come Back When You Grow Up that did get national attention. And, and out of that, we ended up with a contract with Atlantic Records. Right. And of course, American Studios, that's where Elvis recorded Suspicious Minds, and a lot of songs came out of there. That original yeah. studio, I understand, I think there was a fire and burned down, I believe. Yeah, I don't re- yeah. remember how that happened. They've actually that. rebuilt American. A friend of mine was actually cutting some songs in there a few months back and asked me to come shoot some video while he was doing it. Oh, so yeah. Okay. It was kind of a neat opportunity. But spiritually speaking, Chad, where were you? Where was your family during that time? Nowhere connected to God. As a matter of fact, when I got saved in 1968, after Sheila and I had been married for 15 months, as far as we can surmise, I was the first person in my family to know the Lord since before the Civil War. So I came from a long line of disconnected people. So I had no relationship to the Lord at all. I I did go to church for a brief time when I was in junior high school. But apart from that, I had no no exposure at all. So hanging out in bars, getting into fights, that was kind of your <laughs> personality at that time. Uh, I, I was a volatile sort of person, yes. Uh, had a bad temper, short fuse. And, of course, the music business puts you in environments where that's not a good mix because there's plenty of opportunity for conflict. Yeah, I was living a pretty crazy life before I was saved. Let's talk about that turning point, that journey when Christ became a reality, what he did on the cross for you when that just was sensed in your heart, when you realized that you needed Christ. It was a process coming to that. Sheila's mother was adamantly opposed to our getting married in 1967, but we got married. As a matter of fact, I met her. Our band was playing for a function for Rhodes University where Sheila was a freshman at the time. So they were having a thing, a frat deal or something, and our band was playing there that night. Well, the organ player, his wife had met Sheila, and she wanted me to meet Sheila. Well, I wasn't interested in meeting anybody at the time. I didn't want to go there. But that night at that dance, she came to me and she said, Shad, that girl is here. I said, what girl? She said, that girl I've been telling you about, Sheila. Sheila Lane, I said, oh, man. She said, well, just say hello to her. I said, okay, fine, I'll say hello. So she brought her over there. Well, then when I saw Sheila, I was just blown away. I mean, I, I there You're was mesmerized. This, oh, I was absolutely <laughs> smitten. There was this beautiful girl with this long blonde hair. It looked like she just stepped off of Carnaby Street in London. I'd just never seen anything like her. So I was totally, totally emulsified. <laughs> Anyway, from that point, 
I met her. It took me a while to connect because her mother interfered. Well, how much persuasion but, did you have to work on toward Miss Sheila for her to be interested, or was she interested right away? Wanted, uh, wanted to I would say that she was seemed pretty interested right away. Yeah. Uh, Sheila had a spiritual background. She was actually raised going to church, but she had never actually been born again. So, consequently, she didn't have any problem connecting with me and my lifestyle. But anyway, we met, and then five months later, we got married. And then she just took up right along with me, and we were living a wild and crazy life together back in the late 60s, man. You know how it was back in those days. Beatles, but, I mean, that was happening at the time. Uh, oh, yeah. Rock and roll was really kind of starting to lay that foundation. Absolutely. And we were right in there with it but her mother got on a campaign to try to get me fixed so she was attending park avenue baptist church in memphis pastor don milam and she asked us to go repeatedly well after a while i decided you know i'm never going to get this woman to leave me alone unless i actually go to this church so i consented to go And I told Sheila, I said, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to go, but I promise you, she will never ask me to go again. (laughs) And Sheila, knowing me, she said, well, what are you going to do? I said, don't worry about it. It'll work. So we went that Sunday morning, and then that Sunday morning, I did everything I could think of to embarrass her mother. It worked. But when they passed out the visitor cards, I asked Sheila, I said, what is that? She said, well, if you fill that out, they'll come see you. I said, great, give me one. So I filled the thing out, and I said, I don't like this preacher. I don't agree with him, and maybe we could have a discussion sometime. That was a mistake because on Tuesday, he showed up at my house and thought, well, okay, now I'll just shift gears. I'll be nice. He'll be happy, and this will be over. Well, that didn't work. Now, I was nice, but he wasn't happy because, you know, he shared Jesus with us. He didn't tell me I was going to hell. He didn't tell me how rotten the music business was, and he didn't tell me how bad I was. What he did was he talked about Jesus and how good he is and what he could do for us. And after that, he came two more times. But that first time, before he left, he said, do you mind if I pray for you? And I said, no, I don't suppose it could hurt. So he pushed his chair back, knelt down by the coffee table, and prayed for us. That got my attention. wasn't anything that he said, really. It was that action, because I knew that in all of my vibrato, I couldn't do that, but he could do it, and that elevated him immensely in my eyes. And so after he left, I told Sheila, I said, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if I believe him or like him or what, but I could not do what I just saw him do, and it made a huge impression on me. Well, he came back two more times and talked to us about the Lord. And then finally, one day on July the 7th of 1968, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. And I sat out in a swing in the backyard remembering what he had said. And the night before that, we had gotten into a fight, a wild car chase around the city, and it broke up out in front of our house. The other guys went to jail. I went in and went to bed miserable, Woke up the next day in the same condition, and then that afternoon, I didn't know how to talk to God because I'd never tried. But that afternoon, sitting out in the yard, I said, okay, God, here's the deal. That guy's been to my house three times. 
Every time he comes over here, he says, you can change my life. Now, my life needs changing. It is a mess. I can't fix it. God, if what he says is true, then I want you to come into my heart right now and change my life. And if it's not, then I don't want to hear about this anymore. Well, Byron, I don't know how a person can get saved praying that kind of a prayer, but I can tell you for a fact that Jesus came into my heart that day and changed everything, (laughs) totally, completely, and forever. And from that moment forward, all that hate disappeared. I didn't want to live that life anymore. It evaporated. But I didn't know what to say to Sheila, so I didn't say anything until Tuesday. And then finally, Tuesday night, I remember she and I were sitting on the side of the bed together smoking a Winston 100 cigarette. And I told her, I said, Sheila, we got to talk. I said, something happened to me on Sunday. I don't know what it is, but I know it's changed my life. I said, can we go see that preacher and have him tell me what this is? And she said, absolutely. So we got in touch with him, went to see him on Thursday. He explained the new birth. And then we all got excited. So, <laughs> oh. And then four weeks, about four or five weeks later, we met a young guy at the church named Jimmy Craft. Jimmy was 17 years old, been saved and preaching since he was a kid. And he came over to our house that first night and met with us and started teaching us the Bible. And he came every single night for about two months without missing a night, sharing the word with us. And then through that, then Sheila realized that she wasn't saved, and then she accepted the Lord. And then her journey began. And our journey began. Journey began together, yeah. Together, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you said a few things I want to kind of highlight here in, in your story, Shad, and that is this pastor who came to visit you, deep compassion, humility, and unconditional love. Absolutely. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ gives to us compassion he showed humility when he was willing to leave heaven and go to the cross and then that unconditional love the fact that he hung on the cross until he died for our sin yeah and that was the same your story is so genuine and real and it's a great example of how we should be for lack of a better term soul winners yes people who first of all unconditionally love others show deep compassion and are willing to offer some humility in the process. Isn't that what the world Absolutely. really needs to see? It doesn't yes. see that much. It doesn't see unconditional love. It doesn't really see. It might see some forms of compassion. but He was totally non-condemning, yes. and there was no element in his message of, you need to be like me. Uh, the message was Jesus. And the thing about it, Byron, that I've thought of so many times, is that day when he came to talk to us, I was... 21 years old, just a smart aleck kid full of bad things and and in more need than I realized or could realize. But I'm sure that it was difficult for Brother Don to talk to me. You know, thinking back on it, if the roles were reversed, I would have probably said, okay, look, kid, I'm done with you. But he didn't do that. He persisted. He was relentless. But what he didn't know that God knew was that he wasn't talking to one smart aleck kid, but that through me, and all glory to God here, I'm not patting myself on the back, I'm just saying it, but as it turned out, through me, he was talking to millions of people because since that time, God called Sheila 
and me into the ministry, into evangelism. And you've been sharing that relentless love of Jesus for over 40 years now. Over 40, yeah, for I mean, over 50 years. And how, how many places around the world have you traveled? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of places around the world. Many different countries from one side of the globe to the other. And I, I'm so thankful that, that Brother Don lived long enough to see the ministry unfold and to see his testimony and his witness go out into all of the world through us. And since that time, we've actually, through our ministry and the ministry that we facilitate, have shared the gospel with over 25 million people. So that day when he was talking to me, you know, he didn't know he was talking to 25 million people. I mean, I was reading but, a newsletter back in 2016 from your ministry. You were in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. 116, 17,000 people came to Christ. Yes. And, and, and some people would say, how do you know that many people came to Christ? What I think is so incredible, and really it's, again, all the glory goes back to Christ and, and what he has done to lead you and your wife through this ministry is how you partner with the local church in these communities, whether it be in Africa or wherever God leads you to go, partnering with the church and helping train nationals to do these campaigns. It's not just you going, setting up a tent and say, come hear me preach. You're investing in these men, I'm sure some women too, to take the gospel to where the people are. That's it. Yeah, that's it. The common model, it's a good one, but the preferred method of evangelism for centuries and around the world is the they come to me approach now old guys like george whitfield and people like that they didn't do it that way they went to the people and field evangelism dates back to their efforts and to the apostle paul i mean that's what he did Acts says he went to them he preached in the marketplaces to whoever happened to be present that day the method that we use we just call it we go to them We go to them. Field evangelism is what we call it. And it's just simply, as you said, taking the gospel to where the people are, finding them in their own territory. And then what we do is not only do we do that, but we, as you said, we train the nationals in how to do that because the crusade model is a good model. It's not that it's not good, but it's not complete because there are so many hundreds of millions of people out there in the world that either will not or cannot come to an organized Christian event. You know, there are millions of people that have got already got their mind made up that they're not going to go, even if they have a means to get there. Like 87% of the population of India is Hindu. Well, 11% are Muslims. So you got 94% of the population of that country of a billion people that have decided already that they're not going to go to an organized Christian event. Well, so then that leaves the question, well, then what do you do about those people? Well, you got two choices. You can either just leave them alone and do nothing, or you can figure out a way to get the message to them in their own territory. And that's what our ministry is all about, is doing that. One story that I want you to talk about, that this has been replicated over and over again in your ministry, God will make a clear direction where you're supposed to go to do evangelism, whether it be in India or Africa, Mm -hmm. and the finances aren't there. But but you know you're supposed to go. Right. And there's been many times you've gone to the Memphis International Airport to get on a plane not having the ticket financed. How does that happen? Well, when we began this ministry, 
this international work back in 1977. Uh, actually, just prior to that in 1976, God very definitely led us to do this work. And that's, a, that's another story. But uh, anyway, he led us to do it. The question is how to go about it. Because there were two things that we did not have. One, we didn't have contacts outside the United States. So then how do you start an international ministry with no contacts? And the second thing we didn't have is we didn't have any money. How do you get on a plane and go someplace or pay for something with no money? Well, I spent days walking around Sea Isle Park here in Memphis discussing that with him. And finally, God, in no uncertain terms, told me, Shad, it's it's all by faith. You trust me. And the Lord told us, he said, I want you to do this work, but do not solicit money. I said, well, okay, that's, I mean, I come from a long line of pretty good business guys, my father and grandfather. That mindset was in me, and I couldn't figure out how that worked. It didn't sound like a great business model to me, but it was God's instructions to us. He said, you make your needs known to me, and I will make them known to people who will in turn help you do what I'm calling you to do. So we started out doing it that way over 40 years ago, and we're still here. So (laughs) You haven't missed a meal? Haven't missed a meal, and we have not missed a campaign either. We have never in all these 40 years had to cancel any ministry or anything else for a lack of funds. God is faithful. And you're right. We have on a number of occasions come right down to the last minute. But, you know, Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, said that God will always come through if you're willing to wait to the last minute. He will always do it. And we've seen it happen. Do we have time for me to tell you just one quick thing? Yeah, I want to hear it. Um, Sheila and I were going to Malawi, Africa to do a campaign, and we did not have any money. We did have a plane ticket that time, but we didn't have any money with which to do the project. And we needed, I calculated, that we needed $10,000. You know, a lot of times it doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, but when you need 10000 and don't have it, then it's, it's a lot. So on that particular time, that's what we needed. Well, it came down to the night before till midnight. We didn't have it. So we concluded, okay, then we're just going to go to the airport. We're going to get on that plane, and we're going to go because we know that we know that this is the will of God, and we're not going to back up on it. Well, the next morning, we got up, didn't have the money. Plane is leaving at noon, 10 o'clock in the morning. We're still at the house. Nothing has happened. Okay, let's go. So we're starting to go to the car to go to the airport. Well, as I reached for the doorknob to go to the garage to get in the car, I heard a knock at the front door. And I couldn't imagine who in the world that could be, but I glanced out there and I saw that it was a friend of ours from Adamsville, Tennessee. And I said, holy moly, what is that guy doing here, man? So I ran to the door and I said, Jim, what are you doing here? He said, well, he said, okay, okay. He said, when are you leaving for Africa? I said, right now, brother. I'm late for the airport. He said, okay, well, then I'll do this quick. He said, early this morning, he said, God woke me up before daylight, and he told me to get up and go around town and take up a collection for you. 
I said, for real? He said, yeah, man. He says, I went around. He said, well, okay, well, anyway, here it is. And he handed me an envelope, and there was $5,000 cash money in that envelope that he had gone around that day and collected from whom I don't know to this day. But anyway, he had it. He brought it. I said, well, brother, thank you, thank you. And so now I have half of what we need. And we rushed to the airport, got on the plane. Well, I had figured the budget for that project according to the exchange rate that was from the last time we were there. So I took the $5,000, we went to Malawi, Africa, got there, found out that the dollar had doubled in value, and it turned that five into the $10,000 that we needed for that campaign. And that's just one time, one example of things that God has done over and over through it, and he's still doing it. And I'll tell you this, Byron, Sheila and I started out in this ministry 40 years ago with no idea, no clue of how we were going to get through the next 30 days. Nothing has changed. We still don't know. But we've just been 30-daying at a time for the last 40 years. And during that time, we've done over 187 campaigns, traveled to many, many countries throughout the world, and have seen millions and millions of people come to Christ. And it's all because of the faithfulness of God. It has nothing to do with us. You know, that's one thing I'm not confused about. I can't save anybody. Man, I can't even get myself on the airplane to go over there to tell them how to get saved. But God does all of it. And that's the thing that I've always wanted our ministry to do. Yes, produce fruit, see people come to Christ, but stand as a testimony to the faithfulness of Almighty God. You've written a book called Real Faith, Knowing the Will of God, Believing for the Impossible by Shad Williams. Yes, and, and I apologize. I meant to bring you a copy today, and I forgot it. Well, I listen, got it. <laughs> you're going to come back, and Miss Sheila's going to come back with you. I know you have family here. You reside in Adamsville. I would like to have some scheduling of some regular visits here in the studio when it's convenient for you. would love to. We've just scratched the surface. I mean, I never really asked. I had a list of questions. I didn't ask any of them, but that's okay. I think we've started something here for a foundation that we need to add on because I think people need to hear these stories, need to know just how faithful God is and be reminded of that because we forget. If somebody wanted a copy of your book today, what can they do? How can they get it? Go to our website. Our website is wegotothem.com. And also just email us, wegotothem at aol.com. And encourage our friends to do that. Chad Williams, God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for what you and Sheila have done for Christ's kingdom as he has guided and provided and directed you. Well, next time we get together, I want you to hear from her because Sheila is a lot smarter than I am, and she's uh, got a lot more to say than I do. She's prettier than you. And she's a whole lot better looking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my friend, this has been great. Really glad. We have a mutual friend, Don Lawler, who's on your board. And Don has been a dear friend of mine for many years. Ran into him the other day. We were talking about radio shows, and uh, he said, you need to talk to Shad Williams. Well, I'm so great grateful for that yeah i am too well listen on that friend we're going to say goodbye but please go to the website we go to them.com we go to them.com and please check out the book again real faith knowing the will of god believing for the impossible by shad williams well that's all the time we have on this edition of mid-south viewpoint thanks for stopping by i'm byron tyler we'll talk to you next time bye-bye